We are continuing in uh, James chapter 1. If you'd like to look on with me there, we'll be beginning at verse 16. Having last week talked about perseverance under trial and temptation, James goes on in uh, verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Joel, one of the pastors here at uh, Wollongong Baptist uh, Church. Uh, let me add my welcome to uh, Matt and Loretta's. Uh, after this sermon, we're going to have a song and then we're going to have some time for uh, Q&A. So if you've got any questions, uh, please text them in. There'll be a number up on the screen in a second. Uh, if there's no questions, that's okay. But if you do, feel free to uh, text them in and I'll try my best to answer them. Um, Last week, I spent a little bit of time unpacking for us why authenticity matters. If you're here last week, I'm not going to repeat it, but basically, you value authenticity, okay? You do. You value it in businesses. You value it in yourself. And believe it or not, people value it in many things. In particular, people value it when it comes to the Christian faith. Uh, last week, like I mentioned last week, uh, McCrindle Research, an Australian-based research company, uh, released a paper, uh, and in that paper, what they uh, concluded for us is that when it comes to the Christian religion, uh, the greatest attraction for people to want to know more about the Christian faith is people who live out an authentic, genuine faith, while the greatest repellent to Christianity was people who are hypocritical, inauthentic, representations of the Christian faith. Authenticity matters, which is why we're looking at the book of James, a book that is about how to cultivate authentic faith. Last week, we tackled uh, the, to the topic of trials, and tonight we're going to, I guess, tackle more the theme or the topic of deception. But before we do, I'm going to pray. And so why don't you pray with me? Uh, Father God, as we uh, come to your word right now, Lord, we pray that you help us to sit under it, 
to humbly receive it, to listen to it, and to do it. Lord, we thank you so much for this time, and uh, Lord, I pray that we may um, understand uh, your scriptures tonight, uh, that you may teach us to be more like your son Jesus and to follow him and worship him. And so, Lord, I, I pray in particular that you speak to us tonight, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, during World War II, uh, about a few days after D-Day, if you don't know what D-Day is, it's a really important time in World War II, I'll have time to unpack it for you, but basically it's when the Allies invaded Normandy, uh, a real pivotal moment in the war, uh, Normandy's in France. Anyway, a few days after uh, the Allies uh, landed in uh, Normandy, what happened is that the Allies got together and they decided to create a new army unit of about 1,100 men. And this army unit had a special name, and their name was the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops. Now, everyone's forgotten that name, and what everyone remembered this unit by was a simple name called the Ghost Army. The Ghost Army. You see, these 1,100 men had a really unique role, and their role was not to fight the enemy, fight the Nazis, but to deceive them. But to deceive them. And the way they did this was firstly through visual deception. Let me give you a few examples. The, the first example is what they did is they actually made up um, tanks that we picture on the screen, for example, that are inflatable rather than actually being real tanks. So what they did is they made lots of these tanks up and then put them around near the battlefield to try and deceive the enemy. They also had inflatable planes and inflatable trucks. And, and this actually deceived the enemy. So if they're flying above and they're trying to have a look to see if there's any enemy there, they would have seen tanks. But on top of this visual deception, this ghost army also did some sonic deception. What they did is they recorded a whole lot of real tanks and real soldiers and trucks moving along in like a sound studio. And then they got those sounds onto a basically uh, recording disc. And then they created these boom trucks that had subwoofers and all. And then for about 10 to 15 kilometers out from the battle lines, they would just play these sounds throughout the night. And so the Germans were like, well, we can't go there. There's an army there. This ghost army deceived the Germans. You see, they thought that what was there was actually a real, authentic army, when in reality they had been deceived. This tactic worked really well, and on a few occasions it saved tens of thousands of lives. But obviously this deception came at a cost for the Nazis. Obviously that's a good thing for us, but nevertheless, it came at a cost for them. The book of James, like I already said to you, is about authentic faith. And in today's chapter, or tonight's chapter, James is going to be asking us a simple question. The question is this, do you have authentic faith, or are you being deceived? Do you have authentic faith, or are you being deceived? Now, I come up with that word, deceived, because it's mentioned three times in this passage. In verse 16, you see it. In verse 22, you see it. In verse 26, this is a key theme to this passage. You see, James was writing this to us, but also to his original audience. And if you remember his original audience, uh, he was writing uh, to a group of people who were not in Jerusalem anymore, but instead had scattered throughout Asia after persecution. These were Christians that were living in new cities, new countries, in areas that had different religions, different philosophies, different value systems. And so James writes his letter to them to explain to them what it looks like to follow Jesus. And in this passage, he says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. I think this is a, a really relevant passage to not only James's original audience, but also to us today. Because truth be told, I, th I think we can also be deceived as well. You know, we may feel like that we're better than James's original audience, but truth be told, our hearts are just like theirs. 
And I think we can fall into the same sort of traps that they are falling into. And so with all that in mind, we're going to dig into this passage in verses 16 to 27. And specifically, what we're going to learn here in, in these verses is we're going to learn two truths. And, and they're going to be two truths that are going to help us battle against deception. Two truths to help us battle against deception. And the first truth, which is this, it'll come up on your screen, is that people with authentic faith know that God is a good father who loves his children. And repeat that, people with authentic faith know that God is a good father who loves his children. Have your Bibles? Look at them. I'm going to read to us verse 16 to verse 17. James says this, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. You see what's going on here? He's saying, don't be deceived. Last week we talked about trials, and so people will be like, no, no, when they're suffering, God's not a good God, God's an evil God. And then here he goes, no, James says, no, 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 don't be deceived. God is a good God. Did you notice here? Every perfect and every good gift comes from Him. So next time, maybe you're listening to music on Spotify, maybe you're having some good coffee, for example, maybe you're eating some cheese, maybe you're just, having, just laughing with your friends, maybe you're going for a surf, maybe you're going for a bushwalk. All those good moments in life, we're like, yeah, this is, this is awesome. James says they're like good gifts from God, that God is a good God. But on top of being a good God, he's also a good father, a good father. You know, I think a lot of us here are pretty tough, but I don't think any of us here are so tough that we don't long for a good father. Uh, as many of you know, I've got two sons, Elijah and Isaac, and what I've noticed in them over the years, since I've been a dad for five years, is how there's like, almost like an irrational longing they have for my affection. Like they really long for my protection. Like they love the fact that I'm stronger than them. They love the fact that I can pick them up, that I, that I cuddle them, that I'm proud of them, that I tell them that I love them. Like they love that affection that I give them. And truth be told, I think we all long for such affection. We all long for that. And you know what James is trying to say to us here? Remember that God is good, but also remember that he's your father if you follow Jesus. That just like I love my sons, that God loves you even more perfectly, that God cares for you, that God knows you, that God loves you for who you are. Yes, he wants you to be necessarily better than what you are, but at the same time, he loves you for who you are right now. In Christ, he loves you for who you are. You know, not the perfect version of you that you wish you were, but for who you are right now. You know, James wanted to remind us of this, that God is good and that God is a father. Do not be deceived. But then he moves on. He also says he's a father who loves his children. Look at verse 18. James says this. He, that's God the Father, chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. See, God's a good father, but he also is a good father who loves his children. Like you notice here how he says that if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been chosen, that you've been given birth to uh, by the Holy Spirit. A theological word here it means you've been regenerated. But also it says here that you are a first fruit that has been created for God. 
few years ago, uh, I lived at Bible college uh, with my wife and my, and my boys. And uh, at Bible college, most people live in the same house for three years. Uh, we weren't that lucky, so we got shifted around a fair bit. Uh, and on our, our third year in our third house, uh, we ended up uh, replacing these um, lecturers who had been, or a lecturer and his wife, sorry, who'd been at the house for about 10 years. Um, and so anyway, they were moving to another house. And, and we came in and lived there for a few weeks. And also we got a knock on the door. And it was a lecturer. It was my Greek New Testament lecturer and his wife. And they knocked at the door and said, Hey, Joel, hope you're settling in okay. Uh, do you mind if we just like take a look at the garden in the backyard? And I was like, that's weird. Like, no, it's my house. I wanted to say go away. But he marks my essays. So I'm like, yes, come on in. You know, welcome. Okay, you want a cup of tea? What else can I get you? And anyway, they walked into the backyard and they went specifically up to one tree. And there was this fruit coming down from it. And I was like, this is weird. What's going on? And they explained to me that it was a mango tree and that that was a mango, and that they had waited six years for this mango tree to produce fruit. And on that sixth year was the time when we had taken over. And believe it or not, Isaac, I know Eli actually ripped one of them off before that it um, became ripe, but there was two of them, so they got the other one. Six years. Can you imagine waiting that long for a fruit? Can you imagine how excited you would be? You would be weird and knock on someone's door and say, can I check out that fruit? You know what's really cool about the scriptures is what it says here is that if you're a follower of Jesus, that, that we're kind of first fruits. You know, that God has been waiting in anticipation for us to become followers of Jesus. In the book of Ephesians, it says that those who have been chosen or predestined in Christ have been predestined before the world began. That means God hasn't waited six years. He's waited thousands of years, if you're a believer here tonight, for you to become his child. Like he rejoices over that, that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he rejoices over the fact that you follow his son, Jesus. In a world that wants to say to you, God is not good. In a world that wants to say to you, God doesn't really love you. James says, don't be deceived. God is a good father and he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. That's what James wanted to say to his original audience. That's what he wants to say to us here tonight. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, can I say to you, there's also an offer there that if you follow Christ, that that love will be extended to you too. And it's a great love that you don't want to miss out on. Now, why does James say this? Why does he say, don't be deceived? And then why does he talk about who God is and who they are? Well, I think it's because they're not actually acting as if they do believe that God's a good God and as if they actually are loved by God. I think they're they're, they're not acting in that way. They're not acting to please their father who they love. You see, have a look at verse 19. This is what James says. He says, my dear brothers and sisters. I love how he says that. You know, he's, like, he's, he's quite gentle with them. But then look at this. He says, take note of this. I hear like, nudge, nudge. You guys, listen up. I want you to listen to this, right? Because you're clearly not doing what I'm about to say. He says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I want you to pick up on that last bit, the righteousness that God desires. Anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. It doesn't please him. It doesn't please him. Um, Like I said to you before, I'm talking about my sons because I think it's relevant tonight. Uh, My boys have got Elijah and Isaac, and Elijah's really tall. Have you ever met him? He's really tall. He's only five years old, and he's like, no, he's like this big. He's not too big, Uh, but he's really tall. And he always looks at me, and he's like, Dad, I want to be tall like you. I really want to be tall like you. And he sees me watching basketball clips at the moment. He's like, Dad, I want to play basketball like you. Or he says to me, Dad, I want to be a pastor like you. 
I don't want to be a pizza, I want to be a pastor, he says to me. I want to be a pastor. Like, and whenever he says things like that, like, I've got to be honest, like, it makes me feel really good. Like, there's something affirming about that. There's something nice about it. You may think I'm narcissistic, but I, I don't know. It's just really affirming. Let me, let me be straight with you. I think that probably the most insulting thing that my sons could ever say to me is if they had to say to me, Dad, I don't want to be anything like you. Man, that would kill me. You know, it's the same for God the Father. He wants his children to be like him. And he's like a thousand billion times better than me. He's God. And yet his children are not being like that. And it's because I don't think they understand that God is a good father and that they are his loved children. You see, instead of being like God and being slow to anger, they're, they're quick to, they're not, sorry, they're slow to listen and they're quick to speak. Instead of being like God and being slow to anger, they're quick to get angry. How about us? If we're followers of Jesus here tonight, let me ask you, how are you going when it comes to your anger? You know, God is slow to anger. How are you going when it comes to listening? Are you slow to listen? Now repeat that for some of you. Are you slow to listen? Sorry, I should say quick to listen there. That was wrong. Are you quick to listen? Are you quick to listen? I'm going to confuse. Are you quick to listen? Are we quick to listen? And then are you slow to speak? Are you slow to speak? Are we like God the Father? Are we trying to be like Him? Or are we just being deceiving ourselves and saying that He's our Father but not acting like His children? A few years ago, I watched this video clip, uh, it was just on YouTube or something, uh, and it was of this family, and it was like a father and his wife and his children, and it was before they got going to church, and what was going on is that the father was just going crazy at his wife, he was just yelling at her, being abusive, and then the wife was just yelling at her kids, and like no one's listening to each other, everyone's just yelling at each other, and then all of a sudden they get in the car, they drive to church, and while they're in the car, they're throwing things at each other, just acting like crazy, until about like 50 meters until they get to church, and then everyone's like on best behavior. And then everyone walks through the door, like the husband is like holding his wife's hand, he's got his arm around his kids, everyone's smiling, and like, yeah, we're at church. And I remember that just really hit me, how deceptive it is. You know, God doesn't want us to be deceptive, he doesn't want us to deceive other people, he wants us to be authentic, and he wants us to realize that church attendance doesn't please him, but what pleases him is being like him, is being like him. Truth number one to avoid deception is we've got to remember and never forget that God is a good father and that we are his loved children. May we never forget that. Second truth, second truth to combat being deceived is this, come up on the screen, is that people with authentic faith are not just listeners of the word, but doers. People with authentic faith are not just listeners of the word, but they're doers. Of the word. Look at verse 22 with me. You've got your Bible there. James says this Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Let me stop there. When he, his point here, let me repeat it, is do not just listen to the word, but do what it says. Now I'm going to get on to doing in a second, but let's not skip over listening because you still need to listen to the word. And so let me ask a few simple questions. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus and you claim to be, do you have a Bible? Do you own a Bible? Do you read a Bible? If you don't, let us give you a Bible. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you like a Bible, let us give you a Bible. We've got lots of them here to give you. But also, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have the Bible, do you read it? Do I read it? Do we read it? I don't want to just 
preach this to you guys. I want to preach it to myself. Do we value this for the words of God? Like I was thinking about this week. If we were to have some sort of convention here on leadership, and let's say we had Elon Musk and Barack Obama, and let's say even Donald Trump come to WBC to do some sort of leadership conference for us, my guess is, is that thousands of people would flock here with notepads and pens ready to take notes or to throw things at people. I'm not too sure. But when we come to church, we have literally the God of the universe speaking to us. I wonder if we think that week in, week out. I wonder if we come to home group. I wonder if we wake up each morning and realize that. One of my favorite uh, dead guys, he's a, used to be a pastor, obviously. No, he's not. Uh, he's a guy called Charles Spurgeon. Uh, I've quoted him a few times. He's got this great quote, which I love. And his quote is this. He says, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And so first, do we listen to the word? Do we listen to it? But now, more importantly, do we also do it? Do we also do it? Let me read to you verse 22 to 24 and pick up on the imagery that James uses here. It's brilliant. In verse 22, James says this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forget what he looks like. This is not a rhetorical question, so please don't shout this out. Uh, How many times each day do you look in the mirror? How many times each day do you look in the mirror? A recent study, or in 2015, pretty recent, uh, a men's magazine uh, did a survey of a thousand British people. And from those thousand people, they were trying to discover how often people look at their own reflection or look at the mirror. Now, these results, uh, they change depending on the different, uh, I guess, uh, surveys that are done for other magazine companies and things. But this magazine company came up with this conclusion. Take it or leave it. It said that men look at the mirror or reflective surface on average 23 times a day. And women look at a reflective surface on average 16 times a day. According to this study, it said what that mean, they also came across that men spend about 10 minutes a day looking at themselves in the reflection, uh, which amounts to about six and a half days a year of looking at their own reflection. How often do you look at the mirror? How often do you look at the mirror? My guess is that whenever you look at the mirror, is that if you see like a really bad gray hair that you can pull out, or maybe if you see like, I don't know, some makeup that's smudged, or you've got a really big booger, or like, I don't know, some food on your mouth, my, my guess is, is that you clean yourself up, that you do something about it. You look at the mirror, and then you do something about it. You see, the mirror shows your imperfections, and so you try and fix them up. You know what James is saying to us in this passage? He's saying the scripture works in a similar manner that we can look at it and it can reflect to us who we are. It can reflect to us who we are in Christ, but also it can reflect to us our sin that we need to change. But here's the problem. When we tend to look at the mirror of Scripture, we tend to do one of two things. Number one, we tend to go, the mirror is broken. You know, (laughs) it keeps on pointing out things that are not true. You know, clearly that mirror is broken. Let's not use that mirror. Let's not have a look at that. Or another thing we do is we we look at this mirror and we let it reflect to us the realities of life. But then instead of going and doing something about it, we do nothing. We do nothing. James says to us, if we do that, we're deceiving ourselves. And look, 
I don't know if this is true for you, but I know this can be true for me. I think a reason why we're likely to do this is because it, when, it, when we dig down deep, the truth is, I think at times, we care more about our physical appearance and what other people think about us than we care about our spiritual maturity and what God thinks of us. I repeat that. I think we can care more about our physical appearance and what people think of us compared to our spiritual maturity and what God thinks of us. And so let me, let me just ask a simple question. Are you a doer of the word? Are you a doer of the word? Uh, like I said, uh, I went to Bible college for three years. Uh, what that meant, I don't want to say this to brag, but I studied the Bible a lot. I uh, studied it in Greek and Hebrew. Um, I've listened to many podcasts over the years and read lots of books, uh, which is a huge privilege, but I, I, I know a lot. And yet as I was preparing for this sermon, I'm like, how much do I do? I reckon the, the greatest difficulty of my job is to practice what I preach, and yet you guys share that same burden with me as followers of Jesus. So let me ask you, how are we going? And not just being hearers of the word, but being doers. Not just hearers, but being doers. Let me give you an analogy to try and uh, help this point sink into your brain. Um, I want you to pretend uh, that there's a father. He's not me, someone else, right? There's a father, and let's say that he has two sons. Let's just call them John and Travis, right? John and Travis. Uh, and let's say that they're teenagers, uh, and that uh, these teenagers, John and Travis, that they have a few chores, but one of their chores is to put the rubbish out. Okay, so Monday mornings when the rubbish bin man comes, Travis and John's job is to get up in the morning, is to clean up the kitchen, clean up the house, get the rubbish, put it in the kitchen bin, put that bin in the rubbish bin, wheel out the bins, put it on the rubbish curb for the rubbish man. I want you to pretend that this father wakes up, he's got to go to work, his two sons are asleep, but what he notices is that the house is an absolute mess. And so what he does is he writes a note to his sons. He writes this note and he's going to put it on the fridge. And this is what he says on the note, right? He says, boys... I love you. You're my boys. I wouldn't give you up for anything else in the world. I'm so thankful to God for you. I rejoice in the fact that I'm a father. I love you so much. Had fun with you last night. But boys, I just want to remind you that today is the day that the rubbish truck comes. So I want you to get the rubbish together and put it in the rubbish bin so that you know, we don't have rubbish throughout the whole entire house. Love, Dad. I don't want you to imagine that Dad goes off to work, comes back to work, drives into the driveway, has a look, there's no rubbish bin on the gutter, you know, like empty and fallen over. So he's like, oh, okay, cool. The boys are good boys. They must have brought the bins in. He then goes inside and he sees his two boys, Travis and John, sitting down, studying something. And yet the house is an absolute mess, right? The rubbish is still there. The rubbish bin hasn't been taken out. And so the father's like, all right, family meeting. Gets John and Travis together. He's like, boys, did you read my letter? Now I want you to imagine that John and Travis are like, yeah, dad, we wrote it. And the prose was fantastic. The sentence structure was immaculate. The imagery you're using was magnificent. You know, especially how you talked about the yellow bin and the green bin and the red bin. That just blew our minds. Like, Dad, we really love this letter. Matter of fact, we, we skipped school so we could study this letter. And, you know, and as we were studying it, we'll think about how does this apply to us? How could it apply to other people? What does it say? What doesn't it say? 
And then we got our friends over. They skipped school too. And we had like a study together. And then we were thinking about, we did some like, you know, literary, literary context. And we had a look at the different literary societies. It's a letter. And then we thought, who's the author of this? And who's the audience of this? And then we thought, what date it was written? And then we were like, this is incredible. Let's start a blog. And so then they started a blog post and then a website. And then they started a ministry for fathers on how do you write letters to your children to ask them to put the trash out. At that moment, Imagine the dad saying, boys, did you put the trash out? Oh, sorry, dad. We just, we loved your letter so much. It just changed our lives that, yeah, we just forgot to do it. I, I think at times the church can be like that. You know, I think sometimes we can spend so much time studying the Bible, but we don't actually do it. We don't actually do it. So if you're a follower of Jesus, can I, can I question you? Can I challenge you? Are you not just a hearer of the word, but a, a doer? A doer. In verses 26 to 27, James gives us some few examples of what it looks like to do the word. Let me just read to you verse 26 to 27. James says this, he says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In particular, what's going on here is James is saying, look, this is what it looks like to do the word. Let me, let me give you three specific examples that this church in particular, or these people needed to put into practice. Number one, he's like, you've got to tame the tongue. Number two, you've got to help the helpless. And number three, you've got to keep yourself from the pollution of the world. You've got to tame the tongue, you've got to help the helpless, and keep yourself from the pollution of the world. He, he, he contrasts here religion that is worthless with religion that pleases God. And what he's saying here is that religion that pleases God is one where you don't just hear the word, but you do it. You do it. And so, look, I don't necessarily have time to unpack all of these, but let me just ask you some simple questions in regards to these three topics. The first one is this. If you're a follower of Jesus, how's your tongue going? How are you, how are you going at taming your tongue? amongst your friends, amongst your work colleagues, amongst your university friends or students? Are you known as someone whose words build other people up? Are you, are you known as someone who's positive, someone who encourages people, someone who loves people with your words? Or are you known as someone who's just like, I know, negative all the time, always whinging, always complaining? James will really unpack this for us in, in chapter 3 in a few weeks' time. But, but let's just begin by asking ourselves, how are we going with our tongue? How are we going with our tongue? Number two, how are we going at helping the helpless? How are we going at helping the helpless? How are we going when it comes to using our finances? Like, like are we seeking towards being generous with the money that we have? That's a gift from God, a good gift from Him. I know some of you here support Compassion Kids or Baptist World Aid Kids. That's awesome. And for those of you who don't, can I encourage you to do so? When it comes to helping the helpless, I was so encouraged when I asked you guys to help me when it came to James. And some of you straight away are like, yes, I'll help. I'll get him food, whatever I can. That's awesome. Keep that up. I also know there's someone else here that's been cooking meals for my wife's friend who's a single mom and, and been doing it like repeatedly. Like, that's awesome. Keep it up. You know, as Christians, we can't just talk about love, but we actually got to show love as well. And so how are we going at helping the helpless? How are we going? Do we, do we know who are the widows and the orphans? Do we know who are the widows in our own church? There's a lot. I emailed Rod this week and he gave me a long list. 
There's not many here in the evening service. Don't get me wrong, there's a few, but there are a few in our church. Are you praying for them? Do you care for them? Do I care for them? How are we going at helping the helpless? And finally, how are we going at being different to this world and not being polluted by this world? You see, what I loved about Jesus is how much he loved people, but he was also so different to everyone. And I loved his teaching, how he tells us to love the world, but not be like the world. I wonder how we're going at that. I wonder how we're going at that. You see, in this passage, the big idea, and I hope you don't forget it, is verse 16. It's quite simple. It's don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. It's a simple big idea. Simple big idea. In 1983, uh, the Sunday Times, which I think is like the most popular British newspaper, uh, and a magazine from Germany known as the Stein uh, Magazine, uh, broke a deal to publish uh, Hitler's diaries. Uh, Everyone was really excited about these diaries and how they're going to be published in the British newspaper. Uh, But before they were published, though, uh, the British Times decided to do some investigation work and just do some like forensic work on these diaries just to double check that they're legit, that, that they weren't forged. There's about 60 of these diaries, and Stein Magazine paid equivalent to today's money of about $9 million for these diaries. So everyone thought, yeah, they're the real deal. Of course, they must be. Unfortunately, they weren't. Unfortunately, Stein Magazine paid $9 million for just some paper with some ink on it. You see, these diaries had been forged by one man. And these diaries were written with material, with ink, with paper that was post-World War II, period. That magazine was deceived, and it came at a great cost. James' big idea for us tonight is don't be deceived, because it can come at a great cost. It can come at a great cost. In particular, James, if you remember this, was the brother of Jesus. And as he's writing this letter, he would be remembering some of the words that Jesus is saying. And so tonight, what I want to do, every time I come up here to preach, I'm trying to do one or two things. Number one, I'm trying to challenge you and I'm trying to comfort you. Some of you, I'm trying to challenge more than comfort. And so for some of you tonight, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do this and not me, but I think some of you need to think, are you being deceived? I want you to listen to James' words, but now I also want you to listen to the brother of James. This is Jesus. As he says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. Jesus says this, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Throughout throughout the scriptures, there's these warnings that, hey, you may claim to follow Jesus with your words, but if your actions don't back that up, then your faith is not as authentic as you think. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And for those of you here who are Christians, for those of you who do have authentic faith, for those of you who are doers of the word, I want to encourage you by reminding you that this life is not about perfection, but it's about progress. And so as you're doing your best to be doer of the word, and yes, you may fall short, may I remind you how Jesus is the one that did it perfectly. How Jesus is the one who died on the cross for our sin and for whatever pollution we gain so that we may be wiped clean. May I remind you of that. May I comfort you with that truth, that he was the ultimate doer of the word. And yet he wants us to follow him because we love him, because we love him. 
big idea. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. The band is going to get up now and they're going to sing a song or lead us in a song. And this song is, a, is an oldie, but you probably know it quite well if you've been to church for a little bit. It's called Come Thou My Fountain. Uh, in this um, song in particular, there's a certain verse that I want you to think about as we sing it. It's a verse where it says this. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. The word here, deceived, in James can also be translated wander. And so tonight, if your heart is starting to wander, if it's starting to be deceived and forget that God is a good father and that you are loved by him, if you started to wander and just listen to the word and not do it, well, this is a chance for you to respond to pray to God and ask for his help as you seek towards following him with all you got. How about I pray for us? The band will sing us in this song. Father God, we want to thank you so much that your son Jesus was the perfect one. We thank you so much for what he did on the cross to wipe away our sin. And we thank you so much for the gift it is to be your children. Lord, help us to live a life that pleases you. Help us to be like your son Jesus. Lord, help us not just to be listeners of the word, but to be doers. And Lord, at times when we are prone to wander, Lord, please help us, bring us back, remind us of these truths, remind us of your word, and remind us of the forgiveness of sins found in your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.